2: Brooke Gladstone. I don't have to tell you who Brooke Gladstone is, do I? And she's the co-host for WNYC's On the Media with Bob Garfield. You already listened to that, uh, author of The Influencing Machine. And now, The Trouble with Reality, A Rumination on Moral Panic in Our Time. Uh, Brooke Laddstone did not have time to do an international tour on behalf of her book, so President Trump is doing one for her. Uh, That's very convenient, and that's very giving of him, too. He could have just let your book die on the vine, but he's really out there. (laughs) He's really out there making a case for buying your book. Uh, You owe him a tremendous thank you somewhere down the line. don't
0: we all? Don't we all in the media? Because uh, never has it become clearer to the public that uh, if you want high quality information, accurate information you might actually have to pay for it after all. Right. So one Public thing, radio is benefiting from that.
2: <laughs> one thing that I've noticed recently and I certainly notice it with your book uh, is that those of us who did take some philosophy courses in college uh, are finding <laughs> that it's useful to dust them all off. Um, we're uh, looking for ways to pin down basic questions of, of epistemology uh, and so y- you begin the book by doing that, by actually sort of walking us through essentially centuries of exploration of the question of what mm-hmm. is real. So tell me, tell me first of all, how you found that useful in looking at the present moment.
0: Well, I have always found uh, that the further you step away from an issue, the clearer it becomes. I mean, you mentioned The Influencing Machine, which I wrote in 2011. That book tries to assess two millennia of media history, as it were. And uh, once you put, th- and there was a sense of crisis then, <laughs> different from now, but once you put things in perspective, you understand that in many ways we've been here before, and here are the ways that it's new. And once things are placed in a, in a, in a broader continuum, then you can begin to get a little grip on your own feelings. It isn't just one great roiling mass of anxiety that that you feel subsumed in. And I think you know, when I was approached to do this, and it's it, a book is uh, it's it's an essay. Mm-hmm. basically, it's an essay in three parts. You've got how we craft our own realities, how Trump made took advantage of that in order to you know, ascend to the presidency. And what, how do we reckon with it? How do we adjust our behavior? How do we understand what happened? How can we get a grip on our realities that have been smashed, colliding with other people's realities? And how do we pace them back together so they're a little more durable than they were before?
2: Right. So we're going to give you all of that. Uh, we're going to give you the, 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 <laughs> the, the problem and a toolbox to fix it with, too. So um, so let's start with that that first question. And I am I will now do something completely ridiculous, which is break the history of knowledge down into three parts. I, I, I'm going to sort of start the clock running, you know, maybe a little bit later than I could. We'll skip over the Greeks. Uh, but certainly in, in Europe, in Western civilization for right up until the Enlightenment, uh, the, the notion of knowledge was that it was essentially received. It was received from higher authorities. It came from somebody who had more standing and status that you did. Probably that person was connected to God somehow. He might be a king with a divine right. He might be a a prelate uh, of some church. Uh, But so knowledge wasn't really something that you were encouraged to think about in question. It was something that was sort of handed to you and, and you were than to, to use it as you were told. Uh, then the Enlightenment came along. We had this sort of notion uh, that every single human being is equ- equipped with this kind of rational apparatus, the ability to apprehend natural laws. And so it's now it's the functions begins to re- reside in the individual person. You have that incredible moment of Lockean liberation. But what Locke says essentially is there are natural laws, there are universal truths, and everybody has the ability to apprehend those. You don't have to wait for the king to tell you. What they are. You can figure out what they are, but they do exist. They they do exist. Uh, and, And so that fuels, among other things, the American Revolution and the early stages of the American experiment but it does seem as though now <laughs> we've moved away from that some of it started with a bunch of french intellectuals you know in the on the rive gauche in the 60s and 70s saying that well maybe objective truth doesn't really exist maybe it's an expression of power or language or something postmodern um but also i think Brooke, it seems as though we've been encouraged to assemble our own realities and then handed algorithms that will power those own real those realities by picking out stuff that we would like and that won't upset us that much and just giving us more. So are we kind of in a third age here of
0: truth <laughs> and objectivity? Uh, I thought that was a really great summary of uh, the philosophy of, uh, of knowledge. But actually, I root the book in something different, mm-hmm. uh, which is biology, mm-hmm. essentially, We have always created our own realities. We may not... What you're talking about is what do we recognize as true and what we don't recognize as true. Mm. We have always been engaged far more in filtering out inconvenient facts than we have been in integrating them because the world is too complex for us to understand in its entirety. We have to create our own little worlds based on... uh, what we observe, certainly, what we understand to be true, and then we marinate that in our values, in our traditions, and in our communities. And then we create a world that is consistent, that is comfortable. It may not be an ideal world, but it's one we understand and we can live in. And when other information comes along that threatens the consistency of that world, basically, it's shaking our universe. We will reject that information. We will push it away until it is impossible to do so. And then we will just tweak our universes just enough to allow that information in if we can't avoid it, which is a process I describe in The Trouble with Reality. This is what we physically do. It is what we have always done from the time that we were living in caves. So that is all of this stuff. Now, if you take it on a conscious level like you are, yeah, we're in a sort of people talk about us being in a post-truth or a post-fact time. You know, these are labels that I think we affix on things after the fact. Certainly, Trump has said that uh, all the engines of accountability whether it's the Congressional Budget Office or the entire media, are just special interests with their own agendas. And certainly we have enough disaffected people in this country to uh, to be subject to a propaganda that says, you know, the values that are being foisted on you, they don't reflect your reality, they don't help you in your world. Uh, Hannah Arendt once said, Mass propaganda discovered that its audience was ready at all times to believe the worst, no matter how absurd, and did not particularly object to being deceived because it held every statement to be a lie anyway. And the fact is, is that if you've been lied to by your politicians and if your life seems increasingly intolerable, you may not really care what the facts are, what you want to see, is a change in your world. And whether it's not it's true or it's false, whoever offers you the opportunity to change your world, uh, what is true or isn't true is a kind of luxury that some people maybe don't feel they can afford.
2: Right, that person who's trying to change your world or change your view of the world. Well, you use the very useful term umwelt, you know, what, what, Mm -hmm. what any being is able to ultimately perceive uh and 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 incorporate into his her or its version of reality so uh, my dog is getting very old uh, he's partly partly blind and partly deaf and his umwelt uh, it's an example that you kind of cite in the book his um- mm-hmm. umwelt is basically comes through his nose right now and mm-hmm. if he's smelling where some other dog peed while we're on our walk that's absolutely the only information he's interested in getting he's it's only the, mm-hmm. the only information he's interested mm-hmm. in processing it could mm-hmm. be that a moving truck is bearing down on both of us <laughs> I'm the guy trying to change his reality by yanking really hard on his leash so that his collar compresses his neck, you know, and, and, in, in a way, that's what you're saying that that it's a very uncomfortable thing to try to change somebody's change somebody's frame of reference. It, it is like yanking
0: really hard on the leash attached to the collar of a dog. We don't thank. Yeah, people I call it does. a nauseating enterprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and as you were about to say, which I interrupted. Okay. I'm sorry. Uh, we don't thank people who try and do that. But it isn't. It isn't. You know. Let us be fair. Um, I don't know really the people who voted for Trump, because I've been living in my little bubble. We've sent reporters out there to ask them questions like, why on earth would you vote for Trump? But that could very well be the wrong question. Maybe the question is, how do you live? How do you perceive why you live this way? What solutions do you think would solve that problem? And then you know, maybe we can begin once again to work from a common pool of facts. Because if you say there are no facts in common, or or if you live in worlds that are so irreconcilable that you cannot share a common pool of facts, then there's no incentive to negotiate. And without negotiation, there is no democracy because that's what democracy is. That's why so many historians fear that Trump represents a great and strong move towards authoritarianism, and uh, and that is uh, and and history suggests that the way he uses the levers of the media as they exist now which of course didn't exist in previous times basically he uses them the same way as other authoritarians have and has succeeded in the same way for that reason of course hannah Arendt also said that eventually the real world catches up with you but uh you know that could take a while.
2: Right. So we let, don't know. So let's, let's go back to the um, the first Hannah Arendt quote that you, you gave us because I think if— That
0: one's not in the book. Right.
2: <laughs> if she was right, uh, and if, by extension, you're right, first of all, I think one thing you're going to hear is uh, Donald Trump saying, uh, Hannah Arendt is fantastic. I'm hearing great things about her. <laughs> I'm, I'm having lunch <laughs> with her and Frederick Douglass next week. It's going to be great, <laughs> fabulous. But—, uh, but y- if that's all true, then he's a genius, right? Because if she's correct in the uh, in the notion that, that people, the masses, don't really object to being lied to under certain circumstances, he may be really the first to figure that out in American politics. For the most part, when politicians are get accused of lying, they say, no, I didn't. I didn't lie. Uh, you know, I never said that. Nothing could be farther from the truth. Uh, they say all those kinds of things, even if many things really could be farther from the truth. Um, I'm going to
0: pull back from the idea that uh, he... Uh, He is a genius, but I will say this. This is a technique that worked for him in business. Mm -hmm. He describes it, or his ghostwriter describes it, in The Art of the Deal. People want exaggeration. They like hyperbole. Now, he encountered a kind of media, a kind of fractured media, and uh, a political culture and a group of people who had been distressed for a long time in a nation of very rapidly changing demographics so the conditions were in place for him to simply transfer those techniques that seemed to allow him to uh, escape his failures his many failures in business by recasting them as successes very brazenly, and do it in the uh, political sphere. But how long? I mean, he's only been there for, uh, what, maybe 100 days and three weeks, something like that. This may not work for the long haul. It may win elections. Uh, It it certainly won't uh, result in uh, effective policy because you can't pass policy if you really don't know how to make a deal in the real world based on the rules that you have entered. Because he may be able to rewrite the deal, the rules of uh, the deal in business with, uh, you know, a friendly court system on his side and perhaps a lower standard of evidence but it's different in washington and this is obviously something he's seeing i don't think he's i don't think he's a genius i think that his character his personality his psychology fit in with a culture the culture that he decided to uh To blast on through and uh, and that's how we got where we are
2: yeah I want to just sort of um, wrap around what you're just saying right now with I mean you use a quote from uh, Ned Resnikoff in your book uh, consensus Mm -hmm. is the bedrock of democracy interlocutors must be aware of their shared rights and responsibilities and they need to be capable uh, of proceeding from a common set of facts and premises when political actors can't agree on basic facts and procedures compromise uh, and rule-bound argumentations are basically impossible and, and and so on it's a great quote it's a great point And it has to do and it affects not only the domestic political sphere of America, but also international relations as well. Other countries are looking at us right now. And and I was listening to an interview with Rahm Emanuel the other day where he was saying, you know, there's sort of a basic core of reliability. Uh, that, that you need as a nation state, particularly as a leader of the world kind of nation mm-hmm. state. And, and you know, and not that you don't, won't ever do things that other people will object to. You might preemptively in, uh, invade Iraq uh, against the wishes of a lot of other countries, but in general... The language you use allows other countries to proceed fairly predictively about your behavior. You say something on Wednesday, it means the same thing on Thursday and Friday. We can all sort of go about our business knowing which side of the sky the sun comes up in. And that's one of the things we seem to be moving away from right here, that notion that words are reliable indicators of what is about to transpire.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. I'm not sure what, how to comment on that, but I, but I think it's true. I also think that, you know, there's something else I didn't put in the book which is quite interesting. It's called the improbability principle, mm-hmm. basically. And what it says is that uh, if events happen that we regard as highly improbable occur, it's because we got things wrong. If we found out what went wrong, then the improbable will become probable. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, the media are engaged in figuring out what they got wrong and uh, and seeing if we can get it right next time around.
2: So I want to ask you uh, how you incorporate uh, something into your thinking. So one of the people that you cite uh, in the book, we're talking to Brooke Gladstone, by the way, the book is The Trouble with Reality, A Rumination on Moral Panic in Our Time. It's a, a long essay kind of book. You could probably... Um, read it uh, at lunch and then maybe the next day you and your co-worker could talk about the fact that you both read <laughs> it at lunch the day before and you'd have something to talk about you each get get two copies. Um, so um, it's, a, it's very inexpensive. It's inexpensive. Yeah, no, actually what you should be doing is selling it as a set with uh, Timothy Snyder's On Tyranny which I think costs the mm-hmm. same amount of money. Pretty much the yeah. same size book too. and uh, mm-hmm. Get a twofer together. But anyway, so um, you, you, you talk about Drew Weston. Drew Weston's a very interesting psychological researcher who looks mm-hmm. at basically the visceral nature Of voting, the political behavior, not starting in 2016, but like pretty much always. Political mm-hmm. behavior is governed a lot more by our amygdalas than we want to believe and less yeah. by our prefrontal cortices, that we make right. essentially visceral, irrational decisions all the time, and that once we have an ingrained prejudice, we'll sim- we will simply alter the contours of reality, even mm-hmm. even violate the basic norms of what we're told in order to make the whole thing come together and make our crazy, irrational, visceral gut behavior seem as though it's thought out. So- so what's different now? Then I mean, if we've always done that, if we've always been sort of wired up in that particular way, how do you? How has reality changed under the current
0: framework? Well, a you know, there's much less consensus. Mm-hmm. There's very little in the way of a public square where you have uh, accidental encounters with people or information that. You might not welcome in your world, but there it is. You have to reckon with it. Uh, we live in increasingly airtight bubbles. And uh, and actually, if you look at the, uh, the studies and the research about uh, the different kind of voting patterns, it isn't really that there are red states and blue states so much as there is city and country. Uh, you know, the cities will vote one way and uh, and the less populated areas will vote another, which is why you can have the popular vote go one way and the electoral vote go another. So it's, uh, you know, it's more bifurcated than ever before. So that's number one. That's what's different. Uh, The media enable that. Certainly that is increasingly true. Uh, The country, you know, America probably has peaked. I I will say that its role, uh, the minute the Cold War was over, and everybody said America was the sole superpower, that actually the opposite was the case. Without, having, without needing American sponsorship and protection, many countries that, had, that were willing to go with the American line decided that they could take the freedom to go their own way and negotiate rather than simply take orders. That is why America's power in the world has peaked. It is simply a question of the threat from the other side became so much less. Now, that doesn't have anything to do with the financial condition of the country. We certainly know that 2008 and the financial collapse brought on by uh, mostly, people will say, by deregulation on Wall Street and, uh, and horrible, fraudulent mortgages uh, at, on unfair terms, caused a tremendous collapse all around the world, a great uh, domino falling situation. So you've got more distress, more separation, a sense, I think, of pride being hurt. I mean, you certainly hear this a lot in Trump's rhetoric, make America great again. Mm -hmm. What made America great to begin with? I think if we ask ourselves that question, we get down to fundamental values about who we are. Um, maybe the answer lies therein, because uh, what I think makes America great may not be what Donald Trump thinks makes America great. So. All so, right. there's all of that. <laughs> all right. Have I answered your question? I think I did somewhere in amply, there. Ample, um, Amply, amply. All right,
2: <laughs> so uh, we're going to grab a quick break here. We're talking to Brooke Gladstone. Uh, her new book is The Trouble with Reality, a rumination on moral panic in our time. Of course, she's the co host of WNYC's uh, on the media. Uh, let's grab that break. We'll come back. We have lots more to talk about. <laughs> We're talking to Brooke Gladstone. Uh, she, of course, is the co-host of WNYC's On the Media, her new book. And it's it's a book that you can buy without stretching your budget too much uh, and then read without stretching your schedule too much and then get lots of other people to read it and discuss it and form groups uh, and uh, have Brooke, Brooke Gladstone groups. Um, it's called <laughs> The Trouble with Reality, A Rumination on Moral Panic in Our Time. So, Brooke, as I was reading this book, I, I started to think about something that Creeps into my mind from time to time these days, and 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 uh, using the tools that you provide in this book, I was trying to figure out uh, where I come out on this. But I'm interested to hear where you come out on it. So you, we can very easily make the argument that that these are not the worst of times. That you know, for example, in 1970, 71, 72. America was this very crazy and dangerous place from 71 to 72 in 18 months. The FBI reported 2,500 bombs going off in America. That's five a day, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, yeah. obviously the incursion into Cambodia, which led to Kent State, where the National Guard fired 67 rounds uh, on civilians, killing four, paralyzing a fifth. I mean, this is, you know, but as yes, you go through other stuff, whether it's Iran-Contra or, you know, just the craziness of the Star investigation and the Clinton impeachment, and then for me, the Bush administration, where I really felt as though Cheney and Rumsfeld were kind of a cabal who got us into uh, an unnecessary war that probably made things immeasurably worse. There's you know, tens, maybe hundreds of thousands of people dead who wouldn't be if we hadn't done some of that stuff. We essentially suspended mm-hmm. the Constitution, got into the torture business openly and held people in cells without charges. So you can look objectively at reality over the last 40 or 50 years and go, wow, there's been worse stuff than what we've been through here in the first 110 days or whatever it is. But this feels bad in a different way. And I think that's yeah. very much what your book is about. So yeah. what is that different way?
0: OK, you're absolutely right. Uh, well, first of all, the world that uh, was created by Donald J. Trump simply doesn't exist. Crime is low, Uh Immigration from Mexico is now negative. More people are going back to Mexico than coming here. That's, it's a simple fact. Uh, there are fewer coal miners than people who work at Walmart. I mean, there's just not that many, you know, coal is not a, a pivotal issue. But the world has changed. It has changed in our brains and the brain what we think is the only thing that matters and so what you have a what you have here the kind of anxiety that is that people are experiencing now that seems worse than the 70s and worse than the 80s is this sense that uh, here I'll, I'll just read the first graph of the book yeah yeah Perhaps you picked up this book because an icy hand grips your viscera, sometimes squeezing, sometimes easing, always present, and you suspect that this intimate violation, this forced entry, proceeds from something more profound than politics. You imagine that reality itself is engaged in an epic existential battle and you stand helpless against the onslaught as the truth is trumpled into dust. Now, what I meant here is that you're experiencing, if you are distressed, if you are queasy, nauseated, if you sit bolt upright in your bed in the middle of the night, it's not because of the crime rate or immigration. It's not because of nuclear, the threat of nuclear annihilation. It's because your reality was smashed. The way that you thought Things worked, the things you could predict, the systems you could rely on, just the way the nation was constructed, the wheels it ran on, all of that turned out not to be quite right. In fact, you know, if, if I were to compare this time to another time, I would say it's a milder version of what happened to the nation after World War I when we had a lost generation who's, you know, a nation rolling along smugly and happily, relying on technology, believing in itself, understanding how the world worked, entering a war that was absolutely devastating on the basis of a lie, essentially, as we've entered many of our wars, and lying to the public throughout. That was when we had a big propaganda operation aimed at our own people under Wilson. People believed things that they were told because they trusted the government, which lied to them. Pictures of trench warfare were suppressed until long after the war. The press couldn't publish them people came back and they and Dada was created. It's mm-hmm. all nonsense. Nothing is true. Believe nothing. You're, y- the truth is a liar. The values you believed do not serve and nobody believes them anyway. And you realize that when your reality is smashed, a lot of good gets washed away with the bad. I'm not saying that this is like after World War I in its degree, but in its nature. That sick sense that you can't count on things, it's very different from the objective reality of what's going on in the nation. It's all I, that's about a going on in your own head.
2: It's actually yeah. a great analogy, I, and I actually do think... That is so much closer to any other analogy that I've heard. I, I take my hat off to it. It really, and when you fold in the dadaism and all that stuff, yeah, I, I think you really you, you have something there. Um, so, uh, and I feel embarrassed with my puny little aperceus that I'm going to bring up right now, uh, but I'm going to bring them up anyway. So, um, you know, in a way, by substituting his relativism for objectivism that Donald Trump as you say Donald Trump basically declares I will create reality I'll create reality it's more than what um, uh, what was said to Ron Suskin by persons unknown although I think we actually know who said that to no, Ron it's Suskin Carl Rove. it's Carl Rove. yeah. I mean I, I think <laughs> Suskin didn't say it in the book though who it was he just yeah. said somebody important said it to him that that you know yeah you're in the reality based community Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> you know mm-hmm. uh, too bad and for we'll you just
0: keeps throwing out realities right. that are more useful to us but they were consistent realities Right. That's the difference. This is, reality, this is yeah. an argument about no reality at all.
2: Right. So, yeah. And, and, and Trump's saying, I, I will create reality based on anything that enters my brain at any given moment. Uh, the, you know, the next thing in my, that goes in my brain will also be the next thing that comes out of my mouth. And that'll be your reality. Mm-hmm. But I think he's kind of turned us into relativists, too, even those of us who profoundly object to him, because our objections to him, as we were just saying, are based less on things that have actually happened. Although you've got the Comey firing and the executive orders, you've got some stuff there. But our objections are more deep and vehement than maybe even those things would have warranted. And I think a lot of it is we just don't like it, right? It's just not the way that we operate. That that in a way, he's turned us into relativists who say, you know, it's not just the things you've done. It's the way you are uh, and the way you act that really bother us. It just departs so much from our idea of what normative life is like that we can't stand it
0: well he's breaking the rules Mm -hmm. his his uh, you know his son-in-law's sister is uh, you know selling (laughs) indulgences in China his family is uh, you know his daughter advertises on the uh, you know the presidential website these things are objectively illegal or at least arguably arguably illegal they're all worthy of investigation And we see the, oh, we see the venality of the system when the people who, the only people who can call the president's actions into question ultimately are the majority, is the majority power in Congress, and they simply won't do it because they value whatever their policy prescriptions are or their continued employment. More than the fundamental principles on which the nation was built. Now, whether or not he, I think almost everybody accepts that his, it isn't even about his tax returns, which was voluntary. I mean, the ethical violations just plain are. But if they don't want to call him on it, they won't be called on it. And uh, in terms of all the executive orders and all of that, yeah, that's policy stuff. I, but yeah, it's fun, it's an affront to what we believed our democracy was, how durable it was. That's what makes us sit up, bolt upright in the middle of the night and say, this isn't what we thought. And, and in fact, towards the end of the book, I actually quote uh, you know, John Adams, mm-hmm. who you know, at the very beginning of this said, uh, every political system depends on people, and people are basically horrible. So don't mm. count on democracy doing, serving you any better than anything else. It's just the system. It's just the template. It depends on the people who inhabit it. And uh, I think we believed that our system was better than that. And I think that that's the fundamental thing that makes us, frankly, sick.
2: Okay. And John Adams, by the way, not Ronald Reagan, is the person who said facts are stubborn things. Um, <laughs> so let's uh, give him a, a shout out for that, too. So, uh, Brooke, I'm something of a McLuhanist. And, and if I can't share my McLuhanist, i with Brooke Black Gladstone. Who in the <laughs> world can I talk to? So I, one of the things I was trying to figure out is, is there a kind of a McLuhan argument for why people are as disturbed and unsettled as they are right now? And, and here's what I've come up with. Um, for example, last night I, I had to go to a reception that was within Walking distance distance from my house. So I walked from my house. I arrived at the reception at about six o'clock. And what happened was, as I walked through the door, people did what they do these days. They took out their phones and showed me these phones, because the the Comey paper trail memo story had essentially broken. Mm-hmm. During the time it took me to walk from my house <laughs> to this mm-hmm. fairly new- nearby location. And, and, and the same thing happened exactly a week ago when the Comey firing happened, right? You probably got a push notification on your mm-hmm. phone, that was the first thing you saw, or maybe you got to uh, showed up at a restaurant and somebody whipped out a phone and said, look at this. So, you know, and I think McLuhan might say, these are this is a different medium for bearing information. And it's actually a, 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 a medium that we even carry very close to our body. There's something more intimate about a phone, right? It's in your pocket. It's your Mm -hmm. pocketbook. It's close to your skin some of the time. You hold it up to your face, you know? And then I'm wondering, in a way, as though we are, whether we're kind of existentially unsettled by all this stuff because... The thing that keeps telling us about all the things that are happening is a much more intimate object than a television console or a computer screen or a radio or anything else we've ever used in history. You know, this thing that we just sort of touch and put to our faces all the time. All right. Pick it apart. Go ahead.
0: Uh, Actually, I really like it. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really, really like it. I don't know whether uh, I think it may deepen the anxiety because Mm -hmm. it increases your engagement. But I do think we have to own our impulse to continually engage. And I don't think that that's, in this case, a bad thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, certainly cable news created all sorts of new ways of covering things that would make no sense in a world which wasn't a 24-hour news world. You know, following people down the highway. You know that kind of thing from a from a helicopter, Comey or O.J. Simpson, mm-hmm. who uh, who set the template there, or you know, I, I I don't know if you remember a few years ago there was a kid supposedly stuck in some sort of aluminum hot air balloon and uh yeah. the, the new and the they followed him all day right. long because cable is a is an electronic fireplace that you always hover near. And then it, you know, came down and there was no one in it and big deal, we were still tuned in, those of us who uh have things on in their offices all the time, like um, most news people do. Uh the way that we cover things continuously, the way that News producers craft things in order to keep us engaged, because engagement means money. For one thing, I mean, fundamentally, the news is a business. Maybe it was supposed to be. Uh, Maybe it was conceived, the free press, as a a way to create an informed electorate, but the government never supported it. It became a business. A business keeps the presses rolling or the cameras turned on by entertaining us and the information becomes the the dog, well, wagged by its tail. And and you
2: you sketch this out so well in the book, too. I mean, everything that you're just saying from the beginning of that comment about the sort of volitional element in all this is Mm -hmm. contained in your book when you use Neil Postman and Amusing Ourselves Mm -hmm. to Death and and the comparison comparison between uh, Orwell and Huxley, where Orwell's uh, Brave New World is all about uh, oppression. Huxley's, uh, excuse me, Orwell's Mm -hmm. 1984 is all about oppression. Huxley's Brave New World is all about seduction. Uh, that that the, The things we hate are aren't the things that are used to imprison us. It's the things that we love. Well, in right. all the ways that you just described, plus my tortured cell phone analysis or smartphone <laughs> analysis, that's that's what's happened, right? We did sort of volunteer for
0: all this. We did. We absolutely did. But right now, you know, I think that in, in a situation like this, engagement is, uh, is, first of all, the way you are a citizen, the best way to be a citizen, and not just to know, not just to look at your push notifications, but to do. If you have an opinion, now is the time to call your congressman. And by the way, calling makes a lot more, has a lot more impact than emailing. It's not the same thing. I can tell you that as someone who worked for a long time on the Hill. Uh, if you want to have an impact, you call or you show up at, uh, at their offices, especially when they're there, as we have seen. And you keep, you you know, you send a letter every, you know, you make a phone call every day or every week. This is a time for engagement. And it'll also have the side effect of actually making you feel better. There's nothing like uh, exercising a little bit of control over your environment to make you feel better. Uh, We're sort of jumping the gun
2: here. We were going to fix America in the third segment. Uh, (laughs) And you're already fixing America.
0: Well, part of the book is is really simply about offering perspective, because I think that that's the beginning of reckoning, and reckoning is the beginning of consolation. I don't offer you anything in the way of actual consolation. You have to get there on your own. But I, uh, I offer you a, a historical perspective that at least enables you to see how in, to many, in many respects, we have been here before.
2: Right. Um, it's kind of like uh, Woody Allen used to end his stand-up. He'd say, I'd like to end with a positive thought, but I don't have one. Would you accept two negative thoughts? Uh, <laughs> but we are going to end with positive thoughts here. We're going to take a break. Brook Gladstone is with us. The book is The Trouble with Reality, A Rumination on Moral Panic in Our Time. So we're going to come back. She's already started to pack your toolbox. She's going to throw a little Jonathan Swift and Walter Lippman in there and then send you <laughs> off uh, on your merry way. Let's take the break. We'll come back right after this.
1: The show seemed to be produced by Betsy Kaplan and me, Kyone Wolf. but
2: can we really trust objective reality? Amanda Fish may be an actual fish, and the part of Bill Curry was played by William James. Tomorrow, who knows? I mean,
1: theoretically, it's a show about castles. And now, back to Colin.
2: Uh, we're uh, coming back for a final uh, segment of our uh, conversation with Brooke Gladstone, of course, the co-host of WNYC's On the Media. Uh, get their on-caffeine mug through <laughs> us, please. Uh, uh, her book is The Trouble with Reality. It does not come with a coffee mug. It's a rumination on moral panic in our time. Um, so, you know, Brooke, you turn to so many interesting sources here, and there's a terrific uh, thing at the end about Jonathan Swift. It would probably take too long to go through the whole Gulliver's Travels thing. Although I too have, I've never known how to say it. It's, I think it's Hwinems. Uh, yeah. Uh, but it's uh, the horse-like beings who have no yeah. word for a lie. They, they. It has to be explained what a lie is. It is. The, well, let's the, the, let's
0: talk about them then. I okay. know that I was during the break. I was saying, yeah, maybe we don't want to go there because it's so complicated. But, but we can. I mean, the horse creatures that Gulliver so deeply admired. He revered them lived purely according to what they could see before their eyes they were purely rational they had no vanity they had no fiction or art they had no dreams they had no they had nothing but agreement they didn't even have a word for lie or an opinion because they all borrowed fully from the exact same pool of facts, so they never disagreed. And this, he thought, was ideal humanity. But the trouble is, Gulliver was forced to confront uh, another kind of being that was much more related to Himself, which were the yahoos, pure id. They, they stole. They cried. They screamed. They lied. They were filthy and violent and and just really repulsive beings. And the the humanims, the horses, hated them. And when they realized that gulliver was just a more exalted form of a yahoo they tossed him out and the the metaphor here has to do with the fact that even gulliver suspected that was that not all was right in the horses they mm-hmm. they never could reflect they would trade their children they would go off to die without reflecting for a moment on how they lived and when you look at human beings, what you see are not rational people like uh, <laughs> like the horses. They're not Yahoos either, but they are people who, unlike the Yahoos, mix the scene with the unseen with the world that we, the structure we have to create to fit the scene into, that is to say, what we see in order for it to make sense so that we can live there, so that we can function there. And getting back to the beginning of our discussion, Colin, this is why we build the realities that we build, but just because we create these walls, we build these gated communities for ourselves, communities of one essentially, doesn't mean we can't peer over the walls. And, uh, and my solution is that if you see that others are also living in human worlds constructed of the seen and the unseen, you may not be capable of really seeing the world as they see it. I frankly think we aren't capable. But you can see reflections of it if you look really hard in uh, another metaphor, in another metaphor in the, in the eyes of those people who are so unlike you. And so what I'm saying is that you give yourself, you know, hoist yourself up a little bit over the wall of your own gated world and take a look at other people's worlds. If you can't go there, then reach out people who don't insult you, not people who use the most extreme, not the people who are the most extreme and most unlike you. Find your way with people whose arguments, you know, are spoken civilly and who seem to be based in goodwill. And see if you can... I'm not saying you should violate your principles or your values. I'm not saying that we can't make this work unless we all feel the same way about immigrants, for instance. Absolutely not. I'm simply saying if you don't understand what the worlds are like out there, when those worlds collide and smash against your own in that highway of unreality we all live on, then uh, you won't be able to paste it back together and you won't ever, ever feel comfortable in your world again.
2: We're talking to Gladstone right now, as we're having this conversation, uh, Donald Trump is just, uh, hours away, very few scant hours away from arriving here where I am. He'll be speaking down in new London and there'll probably be protesters outside. And you know, there might be two different kinds of protesters, people who are protesting Donald Trump and people who are protesting the protesters of Donald Trump. And you know, in a way, what you'll have are two groups of people, each of whom see the others uh, as yahoos and therefore assume that they are whinems that they are noble <laughs> horse-like beings. Those are the yahoos over there. Uh, and that's another thing that we do, right? Rather than, and, and it happens to Gulliver, too. He goes back to England. He can't stand yahoos anymore. He realizes he's mm-hmm. a yahoo. Everybody he knows is a yahoo. We're filthy, mm-hmm. disgusting people. Mm-hmm. That's what got kicked me out of the uh, my little pony uh, world that I like so much. Um, and, and I don't know. It seems like you're arguing for some kind of recognition that, that all of us contain elements, maybe, uh, of both
0: tribes. I'm just saying there's a path. To seeing each other. That's all I'm. Ex- that's all I'm really going for here. I open the book with uh, 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 another metaphor borrowed from the national world, a uh, natural world that uh, David Eagleman wrote about. Uh, there's something called the Umwelt. Mm-hmm. This is the word that your dog, yeah. who lives only on olfaction, right. would uh, would understand. My dog's and name maybe... is
2: Umwelt, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> that
0: would be great. It's a coincidence. But, but let's take your dog. Your dog, before he became blind and, and elderly, lived a rich and full world that was still based entirely on olfaction. What he got through his nose, you can't even imagine. His world was so rich and full, if he knew how puny your ability, your sense of smell was, he'd feel bad for you. He'll, he would regard you as disabled. Uh, you know, the echolocating bats wouldn't understand how you even wander through the world without air compression waves helping to guide you. You know, if you if you consider that perhaps your world is so sealed up tight that you just can't even understand what someone else is feeling, if you or or how they're living or how they see the world. If you begin with that humble notion that all is not clear to you, then you can see stuff that you didn't see before. That's the beginning of it. And then, without that smug surety, you can begin to understand how this world actually really does work. Maybe democracy doesn't work on its own. Maybe the people who don't vote actually do ultimately have an impact on what happens. You know, maybe we won't be saved by our processes and our mechanisms or even our principles. Maybe it takes more than that. Maybe more some skin in the game, so to speak.
2: Right. Wittgenstein said if a lion could speak, we would not understand it. You know, partly because of that whole <laughs> Umfeld problem, you know? I mean, the lion's yeah. just thinking about a whole bunch of things. And I think it's good advice, too, because otherwise people would try to strike up conversations with lions, and that's not going to go well. <laughs> uh, but you could strike up a conversation with somebody who believes something a little bit different from you, see if there's a way that you can find something to talk about that doesn't uh, lead to yeah. anger. Um, so we'll stop there. This, the book is great. Uh, the Trouble with Reality, a rumination on moral panic in our time. Uh, you can buy it at a relatively small expense. Transport it easily and lightly uh, eat it at lunchtime and then organize brooke gladstone (laughs) discussion groups they're popping up all over the country already don't get left out uh but brooke so great to talk to you i've been a fan for a long time i love the show so uh great to hear from you
0: it was a pleasure talking to you too thanks for
2: reading the book all right brooke gladstone uh and thanks also to betsy Kaplan who did get this whole show together we're having a very crazy day here in connecticut and uh, so this is going to be the perfect resist, ornament to put on that tree, uh, and so we'll be back tomorrow. God, I refuse to say what tomorrow's show will be like, be about, because it just changes all the time. But thank you again, Brooke resist. Gladstone. Bye bye. No doubt
1: about his intent. Resist, brother, resist. He is for some, and not for all. Resist, brother, resist United we stand, divided we fall Resist, brother, resist Resist in Boston On the plains of Iowa That's the hand that plays our land Threatens what we stand for don't know nothing about civil rights resist brother resist black